Yo. Hey everybody. I'm excited to be here. I didn't have to play guitar tonight. That is, I think, the second time that's happened in 12 years of ministry. So, thank you to uh, Johnny, Dave, and Caroline. Really grateful. Uh, grateful to be here. Excited to be here. Um, not because uh, I'm excited about uh, what my words can do, but I'm excited what God's word can do. Uh, tonight, uh, if you're here, it's because you believe that words matter. Uh, I mean, of your own choice, you're spending uh, this time in your life right now listening to preaching, and I don't think it's because you like sitting in this beautiful room. I don't think it's because you really, really like Tyler or Stephen. Um, you're here today because words matter. It's not that. It's not that. That, that might bring you, but that won't keep you. Um, <laughs> I can be funny too, guys. Um, you're here today because words matter and because they change things. Um, they don't simply convey information or opinion. Especially when we're sitting under God's words, we hope and we even expect to be changed. Words are powerful. Think about how powerful words are, how they cause us to respond. Imagine hearing these words, not guilty. I love you. You're worthless. You're fired. I do. Each of these small phrases produces an almost visceral reaction, a deep, almost automatic feeling because of the weight of meaning and intention that's wrapped up in them. Our words can lead to great good, right? To flourishing and peace. They can speak of safety and commitment and love. They can encourage and build up, bringing comfort. They can be bold and beautiful, delightful and sincere. Words can even point to the greatest and most glorious truths about God, salvation, redemption, grace extended through faith in Jesus. But words also get us into trouble. They can deceive they can harm, they can hurt, they can destroy. Uh, back in 2014, a young man died from suicide after being prodded almost relentlessly by his girlfriend. And from what I've read, it's unclear if they even knew each other in person. Their entire relationships, relationship seems to have been based on texting. And the boyfriend was depressed, he was emotional, consumed by despair and suicidal thoughts. He and his girlfriend often talked about committing suicide, how he would do it, when and where, how people might react. And this girl, his girlfriend, over the course of a few weeks, used words to convince him that his life was meaningless and that his death would be a relief to the both of them. She was tired of hearing him talk about it. She wanted him to get on with it. Some of the texts that she sent said, do it. What are you waiting for? If you don't do it today, you know you're just gonna be thinking about it tomorrow. Are you going to do it now? You just got to do it. Don't think about it. Deadly words. These words and phrases encouraged an 18-year-old to take his own life. And just a month ago, they resulted in a 22-year-old girl being sent to prison, convicted of manslaughter. There's great power in words because they come and go through a window in our hearts. Words come out of this window and words go into it. Who we are is shaped by the words of others as we shape the lives of others with our words. 
Tonight we're going to look in the book of James and we'll see that a gospel-shaped identity redeems how we speak because it redeems our hearts. So let's dive into our passage. I'm going to read what Garrett just read again, starting at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So this is a unique passage. Um, on the face of it, it seems really straightforward. And yet the passage comes at us uh, through its points, through a barrage of word pictures, illustrations, similes, and metaphors. We have bits and bridles and horses, rudders and pilots and ships, forests, fires, and hell, beasts, birds, reptiles, sea creatures, springs and ponds, fresh water and salt water, figs, olives, and grapes. This isn't just unique as compared to the rest of scripture. It's unique even when compared just to the book of James. He doesn't write in this style before chapter 3, and he doesn't write like this after. We use illustrations and metaphors as a kind of shorthand, using them as a way to help us make connections quicker and help us feel the truth of the matter. And the first connection that James wants us to make is that our words reveal the direction of our hearts. Verse 1 to 4, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. This section, it starts out with an admonishment, a warning. A warning to those who teach. Uh, James does this because teachers are word workers. Words are their trade. And James's warning is specifically to those who become teachers in the church because they'll be judged by God for what they teach. When heaven and hell are on the line, words are of their greatest importance. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's easy to be careless with our words. And I think that we can all recall a time when a careless word cut us. 
or when we've used careless words to cut others. James, in this short warning, he takes a moment to define control of our speech as a mark of spiritual maturity. And we would hope that our teachers would be spiritually mature. It's a mark of maturity because the heart that's being reformed and renewed by Jesus, it speaks differently. Controlled speech is evidence of a changed heart. In Luke 6.45, Jesus makes the connection between our hearts and our mouths explicit. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. For teachers and leaders in the church, uh, because our ministry involves speech, the hardest of all the parts of the body to control, they present themselves more often to the danger of judgment. Because teachers are constantly speaking into the lives of others, it means that they can easily sin with their words and lead others astray at the same time. Words influence us because everyone knows that words come from the heart. And as word workers, teachers have the opportunity to influence tens, hundreds, even thousands of people. And it's this influence that words have that James hones in on. And he begins to explain with these illustrations. He asks us to think about the influence that a bit has on the body of a horse. Or the influence that a rudder has on a large ship. And in both cases, we're talking about direction and how something small can control something large. I mean, what happens to the ship without the rudder? Or an unbridled horse? For those of us in the room who are nautically challenged, like most people living in Montana... um, or who've never spent time on a ranch, still like most people in Missoula, um, we understand this is a big deal. This is a big deal to be on a horse that's out of control. An out-of-control horse is a dangerous horse. An out-of-control ship is a dangerous ship. If the tongue is a rudder, then the heart is the pilot. And it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And the mouth speaks our desire and our bodies and the whole course of our lives follow. So where's the ship headed? Where's this horse going? Where's your ship headed? Have your words brought you somewhere you didn't want to go? Do your words reveal that you're off course? If I can step out of the similes for a second, uh, remember that we're talking about how words reveal the direction of our hearts what we talk about, the way we talk about it, what we say, what we don't say. It's all speaking to what we cherish most, what we want to be known for, what we want to be known by, what is of greatest importance to us. Dangerous and careless words can reveal that we're living for ourselves and not for God. While we all stumble with our words, this becomes an exception as we become more spiritually mature. Instead, followers of Jesus consistently and regularly speak in grace-filled ways. Ephesians 4.29 demonstrates how our speech is being remade. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. For those who trust in Christ as their hope in this world, the gospel is going forward, and the kingdom of God is being built with our words. And that leads us to our next point for tonight. It's this. 
Without redemption, our words are a danger to others and to us. Picking up in the middle of verse 5, it says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. When I first moved to Montana uh, from New York four years ago, I was naive about forest fires. Um, On the East Coast, the natural disaster of choice is hurricanes. And so we have a water problem, not a fire problem. Um, So fire is a rare thing, um, confined to kitchens, or at worst, like buildings. Um, And so for my first few years here, we didn't uh, see any fire. We had some smoke, we had some hazy days, but that's it. And then in the summer of 2017, lightning struck Lolo Peak, which is uncomfortably close to my house. Uh, And hundreds of homes were evacuated, and a few burned down. Smoke filled the air for almost three months, and firefighters lost their lives, and the mountain was stained and scarred by miles of destruction, and it still is. All because of one lightning strike. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. As I was thinking about the power of words, how they lead to sin or to glorifying God, I don't think that any words have caused more damage than these four. Did God actually say? Our problem with sin began with dangerous words. Genesis 3, it says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Dangerous words, like a spark in a dry forest, devastating and destructive. The bit, the rudder, and the spark, like the tongue, they all possess a power that's hidden by their size. As I was preparing for this sermon, I read this quote. We know from bitter experience that the childhood taunt, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, reverses the truth of the matter. Far easier to heal are the wounds caused by sticks and stones than the damage caused by words. And the tongue is a fire, and fires burn. They engulf and consume. And the Bible has a lot to say about the damage of our words, but I just want to consider a few Proverbs. Speaking of carelessness with our words, in Proverbs 10.8 we read, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Speaking of lying, in Proverbs 25.18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. And of gossip, Proverbs 10.18, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips and whoever utters slander is a fool. 
Gossiping is particularly destructive. Think of the tremendous damage that whispers and rumors can do. Sometimes words of gossip can follow people their entire lives. And in these Proverbs, we see how not only do our words cause damage to others, they cause damage to us. They ruin us. They show us to be fools. As we tear down other people who are made in the image of God, we are foolishly becoming a poorer reflection of the image of God ourselves. The heart is the pilot, and the tongue is the rudder, and the ship is our life. And guess what? The ship is on fire, and it's taking out everybody else's boat. And this is beginning to sound like a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> Get to the chopper. Um, <laughs> James 3.6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue is by nature, it's the mouthpiece of the body, and therefore the heart speaks for the body. And so it corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life to destruction. And James says that it is itself set on fire by hell. I took us back to Genesis 3 and the fall of man in the garden a few minutes ago so that we could see how the destructive potential of words comes from Satan. He's opposed to God. It's what his name means. And without God's mercy, we would all be God's adversary. Jesus has strong words for those who speak with the lying echoes of the words of Eden. In John 8.44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The enormously destructive power of words comes from hell and the one who will be its ultimate resident. Our cursing words can show that the character of our souls is more aligned with hell than with heaven. In Matthew 12, 36 to 37, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Our words don't just cause damage to those around us. They reveal the danger that we're in. When you consider these passages and how you speak to and about others, are you in danger? Do your words communicate that you're being sanctified by God? Or does deceit, malice, rage, filthy language stand as a witness against your heart? Are your words like incense going up to God? Do they smell like smoke? We've looked at how the tongue can be like an out-of-control fire from hell. And James is not letting up. He continues on and he calls it untamable. Picking up at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Just the other day, I saw a Facebook video of a tiger letting his handler take blood from his tail. Says a tiger, the scourge of the jungle book, 
and like the terror of the Roman Colosseum. And he's just sitting there casually munching on some hamburger while a man in khaki shorts sticks a needle in his tail. And after seeing that, I will buy James's argument about how every animal can be tamed. Because man can tame the tigers, but man can't tame the tongue. Every beast has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Our dangerous tongues need to be tamed, but we can't do it. We need the poison removed, but we can't pull it out. Only God can. Only redemption through Christ, seeing the beauty of the gospel and living life in response to his glorious grace will change our hearts, tame our tongues, extinguish the fire that's in our mouth. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jesus in Mark 2.17 answers this question. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can't tame your tongue, but God can change your heart and your tongue will follow. As James said earlier, we all stumble in many ways. We are all sinners. And Jesus is not calling the righteous. He's calling sinners. Not only can he heal our hearts, but he will heal our hearts. It's why he came. It's why he endured the cross, suffered and died and rose again. Christ died to save sinners. Christ died so that we might be restored to God. And Christ lives so that we might glorify God with all that we say and do forever. And we've come to our last point. If God is our Father, then our words will glorify Him. So let's finish our passage. Home stretch, are you with me? We're good? I see that hand. Uh, we're at verse 9. Uh, speaking of heart connected mouths, James says, With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So earlier in James, we were introduced to the idea of the double-minded man. Someone who is inconsistent in his faith and is trying to please both God and the world at the same time. In James 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The double-minded man shows up again in James 2, verses 18 to 22. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, 
that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active long uh, was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And finally in our passage we see the double-minded double-tongued man again blessing and cursing from the same mouth. The double-minded man, the double-tongued man. This is not just something that God is against. Culture hates this. It's inauthentic. Our tongues, what we say, it's this expression of ourselves. What we say ought to be in line with who we are. And you can talk to anyone on this campus and they would agree with that. So if we're praising God on Sunday and talking behind someone's back on Monday, telling off the waiter for getting our order wrong on Tuesday, ranting on social media on Wednesday, there's a disconnect, right? Something's wrong. In Matthew 7, 15 to 23, Jesus speaks of the double-minded and the double-tongued. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. James says it like this. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is saying that this is not that. And it cannot be. There is no way to encourage with sarcasm There's no way to comfort with mocking. There's no way to bless with cursing. And the relationship that God has called us into is one of blessing others. This is part of what God saves us to. Faith in Christ points us in the direction of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and with all our mind. And it also leads us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. How we speak of one another and the words we use when talking about others opens a window into our heart. If how we speak is redeemed, it's a visible, audible evidence of a redeemed heart. Because a salt pond doesn't have fresh water and an olive tree can't produce figs. When you get into this passage, it can feel crushing 
Like, I'm sure in the room today, there are soft-hearted people whose minds are racing about how they've used their words and what that says about what they believe. I was talking about this passage with a friend, and he said, imagine how frustrating it would be to be an olive tree and be given the command, make figs. Think of how absurd that is. Figs are sweet, delicious fruits that make their way into snacks and fancy cheese platters, and olives are Satan's oil-filled grapes. (laughs) They are awful, terrible things that come in small cans, and no one likes them. They are totally different. He would be so frustrated if you were an olive tree commanded to make figs. It would be exhausting, and you would never succeed no matter how hard you tried. But God doesn't criticize or reprimand an olive tree for not making figs. Instead, he turns us into fig trees. Looking back in James at chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. Speaking of God, James says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God, by his word, is making us into a new creation. A new creation that produces new fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you hear this list, the produce of a spirit-filled life, restored relationship with God through Christ, does it describe your words and how you bless those around you? Do these words, does this list, does it describe the words that leave your mouth? Because all of them can. In this season of your life, you have friendships and relationships that you may very well have for decades to come. The foundations for these relationships are being laid right now with your words. If tonight you're realizing how carelessness or gossip or cutting words have damaged those in your life and you don't know what to do, but you know things must change. If you're in a trial, your faith is being tested and you've blown it with your words. You don't want to be double-minded or double-tongued anymore. Look back with me at James 1, verses 2 to 5, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And repentance will lead us to look outside of ourselves for the solution to our problem. It will lead us to wisdom. It will lead us to pray. Consider praying, God, give me a discerning heart and mind that I might be known by words of love, of joy, of peace and patience, of kindness and goodness and faithfulness. God, may I speak words of gentleness. God, may my speech be self-controlled. When our mouths are filled with this kind of fruit, it's those around us who taste the sweetness. To fight this sin and tame our tongues, and control our speech, we don't just need to do better. We need to live in the reality of the new creation that we are. 
when we wake up and marvel at the power of the gospel, the unmerited favor of God that he's poured out on us, our speech will reflect our faith and God will change the hearts of his children. If God is our father, our words will glorify him. Our mouths will be filled with blessing. You know, oftentimes the power to overcome sin can be found by meditating on Christ and his work at the cross. And the longer that I'm in the faith, the more that I'm astounded by the Spirit's work in my heart when I look to Jesus to help me put off sin and put on righteousness. As I considered this call to not be double-minded and the dichotomy of blessing and cursing, I thought about when Jesus had the greatest justification for cursing humanity. As he was being nailed to the cross and raised in the air, Jesus spoke out in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are all responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. It was the penalty for our sin that Jesus was dying for. But Jesus loved the Father with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And instead of a cursing, he blessed us. No one has ever had a better reason to speak harshly or cause harm with their words. But in the middle of the greatest injustice that has ever been, Christ was justifying us, forgiving us, and bringing us and the Father back into fellowship. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Seeing the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus will change our hearts and what comes out of our mouths. We'll confess our sins and honor God with our lips and we'll do that first. And then we'll build up, encourage, heal, and strengthen those around us. And it will set the course of our lives away from destruction. So are you walking in an authentic faith? Does your talk match your walk? And if it doesn't, are you ready to trust God with a change? As James said, we all stumble in many ways, but by God's grace, change is possible. What no human can do, God can do. If we're looking to Jesus with hearts that are being transformed by faith, we have the strength in all of our varied circumstances to reflect Christ in blessing others with our words, in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, um, Lord, we thank you um, that you are able to do what is impossible on our own. God, that the change that we so desperately needed, God, you are uh, able and willing to do the work that only you can do. Lord, I, I pray that um, in the ways that we have been hurt by words, Lord. I pray that we're able to uh, forgive. Lord, I pray that we're able to extend grace to those who have maybe harmed us in the past. Lord, for uh, our own words, our own mouths, our witness and our testimony to each other and on this campus. Lord, I pray, uh, God, that as you give us a greater picture of who you are, Lord, as we find you more and more beautiful, Lord, as we trust you with more of our lives, 
Lord, as we lean on you and become more dependent, that God, that it would um, cause us to bless and not curse. Lord, that when we understand what we've been delivered from, Lord, it would cause gratefulness to well up in us. And just as we have been healed by your word, Lord, I pray that we would be a part of healing with our words. God, we thank you for this uh, time together. We thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.